Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. I want to talk about two buildings today, Westminster Abbey and St Paul's. And I want to talk about them as London monuments, uh, focal points of London and national identity. But I want to talk about them also as churches and the extent to which they still function as churches and what it means to try to be a church and a national monument and, above all, a national monument that charges. And I want to look at the fact that the Christian religion has operated all through its uh, existence in the notion of symbols and metaphors. And those metaphors are how they carry the deeper meaning beyond the literal, beyond the everyday. And the constant metaphor of the church as our father's house, St Paul's as the mother church of the Diocese of London, The idea that the church, any church, is a place where we go as to the house of our parents is fundamentally at odds with the idea of paying to enter, Uh, at least in my experience. I don't know how you enter your parents' houses, but uh, it's not, I think, a common experience. And I want to look at what seems to me to be a growing contradiction between the practice that these two buildings have developed and the language which they still use, and indeed the faith which they still profess. You, both know, you all know them both very well. Um, they're both the great monuments, indispensable parts of any visit um, to London. And they're both at the very centre of what it means to be an established church. And this is really at the heart of the argument. We are a very unusual country in that we give to a particular religion, the Church of England, in England, a role in the state. The king has to be the head of the the protector of the Church of England. The church uh, practice is governed by parliament. We are very, very unusual in having this link. And it's articulated in lots of ways uh, in both buildings. Westminster Abbey, right at the heart of political power. You couldn't have a clearer statement that Westminster, meaning Parliament, and Westminster Abbey are side by side. Church and state physically uh, side by side. And in the posters that Westminster Abbey uses, faith at the heart of the nation, they very specifically show us not the inside of the church, interestingly, but their link to political power. It's an articulation that they choose to make in their major publicity on the hoardings at the moment round the building. Um, Just one point, it's not clear what nation is involved because this is the Church of England. Uh, Scotland has a separate church of which the crown is also the protector. But that's a conflict which is not addressed here, but which is worth bearing in mind. If Westminster Abbey is at the heart of political power and has been since coronations began there in 1066, if not even before, um, 
St. Paul's has long been a symbol of London. The great image of St. Paul's during the Blitz of the Second World War became an emblem, not just of a building surviving, but um, of the whole resistance of the city, indeed the identity of the city. This image became canonical and has remained one of the images St. Paul's uses when it chooses to talk about itself. They're both, of course, uh, absolutely central monuments of the history of architecture in Britain. You can't understand Gothic architecture uh, in Britain without closely studying Westminster Abbey. They're central documents of the history of art, history of architecture, and equally true of St. Paul's, the greatest Baroque building in England. And again, you can't understand what happens in English architecture uh, without. And they've both become, of course, great tourist attractions. Um, the, and they're a central part of the tourist beat and tourist queue to pay uh, outside St. Paul's and outside Westminster Abbey. Uh, and there's a constant queue, a constant press of visitors. It's one of the great cliches of 20th century art history, uh, begun by André Malraux, that in modern Europe, the museum has taken over the temple, has replaced the church as the place where the public go to think about questions beyond mere existence. It's a paradox that in London, the other way around, the church has turned itself into a museum or at least these two churches have. They both say on their websites that they're open for prayer. Uh, they both, of course, conduct regularly Christian services. But for most of the time, you enter only if you pay. And we'll be coming to that later on. Turning themselves into museums, they have done very well. The new galleries uh, on the Treforium of Westminster Abbey, uh, the Diamond Jubilee galleries, are exemplary in the way they exhibit some of the great treasures of the Abbey. This is a museum absolutely doing what a museum ought to do and doing it very well in terms of presentation, lighting, explanation, um, and so on. And the, the way they articulate what they show and allow visitors close, these are models of the statues of modern martyrs on the west front of Westminster Abbey, but explained and available for close examination, exactly as you would want in a museum. This museum in Westminster Abbey is a very good museum. It costs you £4.50, uh, which is not bad for a museum in continental terms, but that's £4.50 on top of what you have to pay to get into the Abbey in the first place. So it's an excellent, if expensive, museum. St Paul's is also extremely good in its function as a museum. It commissions works of art. Um, this is uh, one example um, uh, commissioned uh, for, to, to, to in 2014 uh, to, to mark the, 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 the First World War. Um, and uh, 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 it has below it, as you can see, uh, a label which sets out, as you might hope, in a museum is exactly what the artist Jerry Judah is doing and why they have commissioned it uh, for St. Paul's. So far, so good. These are museums that, on the whole, perform the function of a museum well. My concern is that there are too much more than museums. 
and because of their particular place in national life, they have other functions that they need to fulfill. But on the high altar of St. Paul's, if you go to the side, you will see that the whole altar is dedicated as a war memorial to those who died in the two world wars. This is a national monument of commemoration. And on the floor behind it, exactly uh, to, to the left as we look at this, um, you will find written uh, in the marble that this has been offered to the people of the United States as a thank offering for their help in two wars. These are public acts of commemoration which one might expect to be available to the public on a regular basis. And the same is even truer, of course, of Westminster Abbey, because Westminster Abbey houses the tomb of the unknown warrior. I'm not going to show you that because it's actually very difficult to see. Uh, to enter Westminster Abbey, to look at the tomb of the, Westminster, of the unknown warrior without paying, you need to ask carefully and repeatedly, and you can't stand beside it. You can come in not far away to a place reserved for prayer, but you cannot stand beside it without paying. The staff could not be kinder or politer, but the fact remains that the national monument to those who have died in wars in the 20th century is not freely available to the people of this country or the Commonwealth or other countries whose soldiers and, uh, came to uh, fought in those wars. It's a very remarkable fact. At the end of the First World War, when France and Britain were deciding what to do about this, France decided that the monument had to be in a place that was not tied to one religion and had to be open to everybody. And so the French unknown warrior is under the Arc de Triomphe, where anyone can see it at any stage, go and pay their homage, pay their respects, whatever. Not in Westminster Abbey. And as the moment of annual remembrance returns, I think there's a very big question about why that is still a possible way of thinking about this monument. It's not a monument for one day in the year. Remembrance of that sort is surely something that should be available all the time. It's the kind of contradiction that I think one can find at every level uh, of these two buildings. There are churches, and one might expect that the main purpose of the church was to proclaim the teaching of Jesus Christ. Yesterday, as it happened, the reading for uh, Anglican churches was the moment when Jesus first preaches in the synagogue. His mission statement, what is he going to do? And the first thing he says is that he has been anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor. In the mission statement of the Christian church, the poor are mentioned first and given priority. And that's the filter through which I want to look at what now happens in these churches. The mission statement, uh, which I hope you can read, I hope it's clear enough, um, is very much about the building, um, enabling people of all diversity to encounter the transforming forming presence of God in Jesus Christ, what you might expect. And at the end it says, we will bring together all our resources to make a tangible difference, shaping policy and attitudes 
to tackle social injustice, especially in the area of young people's mental health. Good purposes, if rather specific. What does it mean when you actually visit? Well, this is what it costs to visit the church. The cathedral, the mother church of the Diocese of London, the church which is used for great state events, like the celebrations of royal jubilees, um, where many great national heroes were buried at public expense, as we shall see. Um, uh, tw uh, £21 or £18. Uh, £18 is the concessionary rate for adults. Students, £16. I might just ask how many here have actually visited St Paul's and paid. Fewer hands for the paid. Um, interestingly, there's no mention of any other reductions, and I think that's quite important. You arrive at the cathedral and there's a revolving door on which is one of the great metaphors. This is the glass on the revolving door. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The words of Jacob's ladder, Jacob sleeping on the stone when he realizes he's been in touch with God. This is where you will come to be in touch with God. It turns out that the gate of heaven is congested. Um, when you get in, this is what greets you. It says on the website that you can come in for private prayer. There's no indication at all of how you now would act if you wanted to come in to use this as a house of prayer. In fact, you have to go down the side to the left of this queue where you will discover a chapel set aside. Um, I, I've never found anybody else in this chapel, partly because I expect very few people find it, and certainly, it's certainly difficult uh, to find. And the, again, you're reminded of the warm welcome and the ticket prices. And what you are offered as you queue for your ticket is what you're going to see. The great works of art, the light of the world, Homer Hunt on the left, uh, or the Henry Moore on the right, the beauty of the building. The beauty of the building works of art as you're queuing up. That is, it's suggested, what you're paying your ticket uh, for. When you, if you don't pay, this is all you can see of the building or any of those works of art. This is what the poor, if they are not coming to a Church of England service, will see. No more. And I think we need to ask how many people feel comfortable or confident attending a Church of England service if they are not Christian, if they're not members of the Church of England. To come to a service is a big statement. That appears to be the only way one can see the great works of art, the great architecture of St Paul's. When you do get in, the works of art are terrific. Here is Henry Moore's Mother and Child, uh, as promised on the poster, a very beautiful thing. Here is Bill Viola's uh, triptych um, of the life of Mary. Uh, as you see, quite a complicated uh, pres video presentation that requires a great deal of time and attention. Um, and uh, again, uh, promoted on the website. But then as a museum, things begin to falter. The other installation, uh, like many video installations, um, frequently breaks down, as video installations do. And more worrying, the light of the world, which 
is what I had gone to see uh, exactly three weeks ago today, was not on show. I had paid my 18 pounds. I went to the information desk. Couldn't have been more politely or kindly received. And I was told that the light of the world is actually off show and in bubble wrap. Uh, because uh, there's a long building project taking place where it normally is, and the cathedral had made no arrangements to show it uh, anywhere else. I want to come back to this at the end, because this seems to me really emblematic of something very worrying. For a museum to leave a picture of this quality off show for a long time without making other arrangements would be almost unthinkable. When the Courtauld Gallery next door closed, it placed its major pictures on show at the National Gallery. Other museums would arrange either to show them in another place or to send them on tour. St. Paul's has for many months left Holman Hunt's Light of the World, one of its major attractions. Not just not on show, but the, uh, the person on the desk said I was the fifth person that day, this was at lunchtime, who had asked about the picture. Um, and uh, was told it would not be there. So if the art, in the conventional sense, uh, comes and goes, what about the rest? The other art is overwhelmingly great sculptural monuments. And this is, of course, the other role of St. Paul's. This is what people come to look at. And they are, uh, all the ones I'm going to show you, um, are, were erected at public expense. And I think that's quite an important point that these were put up with uh, public money. Nelson, of course, um, uh, standing triumphantly as Britannia encourages two young boys to look up to him uh, as their model for the future. Um, and a glowing inscription telling what he has done with his victories um, spent in the service of his country, unparalleled achievements, and the Battle of the Nile, the Battle of Copenhagen, and death at Trafalgar a great military monument. Almost next door, Admiral Howe. What he is here for is because of his glorious victory against the French uh, on the Battle of the 1st of June. A little further on, Abercrombie. Glorious victory against the French in Egypt. And the Sphinxes tell you where he is. These are magnificent sculptors, as you can see. But they are also sculptures with no apparent religious meaning at all. None of the inscriptions mentions the spiritual or religious life or even moral life of the person represented. These are monuments to military glory. And here we have Cornwallis, uh, governor of Bengal, um, who fought in, in, in America and in Ireland and in India. Governor of Bengal at the end of the 18th century. I find these very worrying as museum objects or as objects of art put on show to the public. The four I've just shown you show British armies fighting uh, across the Mediterranean in Europe and in America and in Africa and in Asia. None of these are what one might call a just war in any normal theological terms. They were successful wars of imperial aggression and expansion. And if you look carefully at this monument, above all, you will see on the right-hand side as you look at it, the figure of a Bengali. 
Now, nobody would now pretend other than that the British administration of Bengal in the 18th century was one of plunder. The House of Commons itself uh, put on trial governors of Bengal for the rapacity with which they administered the province. This man, Cornwallis, is in the monument, but here we have a grieving Bengali uh, mourning his conqueror, his governor. I think there's no museum in the world that would now exhibit these objects without explanatory material. It would be unthinkable, I think, in the Tate Gallery, in the National Gallery, in the British Museum, with, to have objects of this sort and not to accompany them by a statement, pointing out that, of course, we understand the time they were put up and what they meant, but distancing themselves from it. That a church, St. Paul's, asks people to pay to come to see these with no comment at all is, I think, another contradiction to that fundamental metaphor. Um, and it's, it has recognized this contradiction because uh, very recently, uh, earlier this year, it commissioned the Nigerian artist Victor Ekihanenor to create this uh, textile, effectively a textile, to go beside or over the monument to the Admiral, uh, Admiral uh, Holdsworth Rawson, who led the raid on Benin in 1897. Behind this is the monument celebrating the man who took the Benin bronzes, now the subject of so much debate. And St. Paul's, recognizing the difficulties, has begun a program of temporary interventions to look at these, uh, to look at this question. And the artist, the title of it is called Still Standing. And the artist, who is Nigerian artist, says that this is me, this is the photograph, waking Oba of Uramwen, that's the king of Benin of the day, and every other person that was violated during that oppressive attack on the Benin kingdom. It was a temporary installation, it's no longer there. But it shows that the church itself is acutely aware of the problem, that its monuments are about aggression and xenophobia and a whole range of behaviors which secular society today would regard as questionable, to say the least, and which Christian moralists have always uh, struggled to admit inside the church. But there is one example to the contrary. And this, I think, may be a way forward and something that could be and should be made much more of in St. Paul's. At the crossing under the dome is the monument to Sir William Jones, a judge in Bengal, as you see. We're back in Bengal, the end of the 18th century. But Jones was a very, very remarkable man. As a judge, he felt he needed to understand the legal habits and histories of the people he was administering. He was the first European, therefore, to teach himself Sanskrit. He was the first European to engage seriously with the Indian traditions of law which connected with Hindu scriptures. Out of this came two absolutely extraordinary facts. William Jones is the man who, looking at Sanskrit, 
realized that it was connected to Greek and Latin and Celtic. And in a historic lecture of 1786, he invented, if you like, revealed, I think one can properly say discovered, though it's a risky word, the Indo-European languages. This is the man who showed that India and Western Europe had one shared inheritance. And he went on to argue that Sanskrit was much richer than Greek or than Latin, and that this was the tradition which Europeans, from which all Europeans derived their language and which they ought to study and revere. An enormous inversion of the cultural assumptions of the day, and a real hero. But it's much more than that. Um, he is holding uh, on his, uh, under his arm his translation of the Institutes of Menu. Uh, this is a code of Hindu law. But he chose to call it the Institutes of Menu, the reference to anybody who's a lawyer is immediate. The Institutes of Justinian, the great Roman Christian emperor who codifies Roman law and publishes them as his institutes, are the basis of Roman law, which continued to be the basis of the law of continental Europe to this day. For him to call the Institutes of Menu the Institutes is a statement of equality of culture. And then... Most extraordinary of all, on the plinth, his work on Hindu religion, which he took extremely seriously and which he regarded as being a very important way of addressing the notion of the divine on earth and different understandings of divine truth. And on the plinth, you have Kurma Avatar. The Kurma Avatar, one of the avatars, one of the manifestations of the god Vishnu who comes to save the world and the light of learning, the lamp of learning, is being held over these uh, emblematic figures of Hindu religion, law, and knowledge. It could be the basis of a remarkable argument for St. Paul's to be the mother house, indeed, of London, where people from all cultures find that their culture, their traditions, their religion, their faith uh, are valued and to which they have uh, easy access. Westminster Abbey is a different question. Uh, and I think these two churches matter because for most people who are not members of the Church of England, perhaps not even Christians, and that's the huge majority of the population, these are the symbols of the church and the state together. This is, what, this is where you can hope to see what does establishment mean. The Diocese of London has its cathedral. Westminster Abbey is, in terms of church governance, a completely different category, although not many people will see that or feel that. It's what's called a royal peculiar. Uh, it's outside the structures of governance of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of England and depends directly on the monarch. So Westminster Abbey is a place to itself and to the crown and through the crown to the country. Its mission statement is equally clear. The second one is, I think, a very striking one and I think might surprise anybody thinking that this is a church 
whose principal job is to proclaim the teaching of Jesus Christ. Um, a ready response to the requests made by or on behalf of Her Majesty. It's, of course, to do with the long history of the place and the long history of our country. And it reminds us that it has a place at the heart of power by mentioning in its mission statement the close relationship with the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, and then to serve pilgrims and to maintain a tradition of hospitality. Lots of questions there. Can the church of one Christian denomination really foster true religion, whatever that might mean, in national life? And hospitality is matched by prices and entry times. And the prices and entry times are, I think you would agree, fairly striking. Um, the, uh, for an adult, it's uh, £27, uh, uh, reduction 24, um, and then the rest, as you can see. But two, one group of people get in absolutely free, and that is members of the serving members of the UK Armed Forces, up to four uh, with up to four family members. Um, that is uh, a very striking uh, group of people to identify for free admission, connected presumably with originally the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior and the Royal for Remembrance, but limited to UK armed forces on the website. And then universal credit. And here you might think we've at last come to the fact of that mission statement that I was anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor, but only up to a point. Universal credit, adults receiving universal credit will pay a reduced rate of seven pounds, and that will also cover a family, which in this case is only one adult and one child. The family of UK forces personnel um, have four family members. Seven pounds, if you're on universal credit and you can take one child. I did some research on universal credit levels at the moment, and a single parent under 25 with a child five or younger receives 509 pounds 89 pence per month, per month. And housing is calculated separately but may not be fully covered. That means that a parent and child will be living on 16 pounds 44 a day. And Westminster Abbey is asking them to pay seven pounds to come in. This does take us really to the heart of the question. We all know that these buildings are very expensive to maintain. We all know that for historic reasons, they have no direct grant from the state. But they are churches of the Christian church whose prime mission is to proclaim the good news to the poor. And the contradiction between the house of our father and this is, I think, a worrying one. We all understand the problems, and the problems are magnified Westminster Abbey because the numbers, if you didn't charge, would overwhelm the building, which is very cramped, as you know. But there is a real question that needs, I believe, to be addressed. Once you get inside, again, a series of monuments that have got very little 
to very little to do with the spiritual life of the people commemorated. It's an alternative pantheon. The difference is that for most of the 18th century, you paid to be buried in Westminster Abbey because the dean and chapter, being more or less autonomous, could take the money and you could buy your spot, which is why there are so many tombs there. Uh, St. Paul's, the monuments were put up at public subscription, um, sometimes voted by Parliament. But many of the people are the same sort of people celebrated for political, um, more political in this case uh, than in St. Paul's, uh, uh, or uh, military merit. Um, there are, of course, some great exceptions. Uh, David Livingstone, uh, here perfectly, understandably, as a national hero of the middle of the 19th century, not just because he was a missionary, but um, particularly um, at a point in the, in the, in the, just below the, the centre of his role in trying to abolish the desolating slave trade of Central Africa, which was such a big concern. The Atlantic slave trade had been stopped. The slave trade in Africa internally and going to the east was still very present. Um, and David Livingstone's monument, compared with what we've seen in St. Paul's, a very modest one. There are other monuments, but they're not monuments of people buried here. They're monuments simply to commemorate the poet's corner. Most of these poets are not actually buried in St. Paul's. They're simply a record in, Sto in Westminster Abbey. They're a record in stone of people that the Abbey wanted to honor. And in the background, you can see the wall with the clusters of mostly 18th century tombs of those who uh, could pay to be buried here. And behind that uh, are the royal tombs. It's puzzling sometimes why some names are mentioned when they're not buried there. A plaque on the wall to Roosevelt uh, is, uh, explains that he's the faithful friend of freedom and of Britain. Um, but it's clearly meant to speak particularly to visitors from the United States. And it may purely be coincidence that the tap to give station uh, is placed below uh, the, the Roosevelt plaque. It takes us to the real problem. Both houses of God, houses of our Father in Christian terms, have turned themselves into places to make money. And they have not found a way of doing it which accommodates the people whom it excludes. They assert that because you can come in free to a Christian service, a Church of England service, and the traditional Church of England service with which many people will not feel at home, um, is uh, the answer. Um, there has to be a question about that. And it's not just in this area that you feel that, or I feel, that the rhetoric of the Christian teaching has been divorced from the practice of the building. On the website, um, of course, you can hire spaces in Westminster Abbey. Um, uh, corporate hospitality, like any other venue, and indeed, you can arrange tours of the Abbey for your guests. Uh, they presumably don't pay extra. That's part of what you can buy for your guests. Um, the same is true at St. Paul's. Um, they both run as venues 
where part of the appeal is that you have access to parts of the church. And they both have a shop uh, in which I don't think many people at first glance looking at this would guess this was a Christian institution or that the main purpose of this institution was the advancement of any particular set of ethics um, or beliefs. And uh, no more at Westminster Abbey. Um, this is the state church at the heart, saying it's putting faith at the heart of the nation. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a question. But there's a further question. Both institutions are closely connected to two of the most expensive private schools in the country. Inside the precinct of Westminster Abbey is Westminster School. Um, they were, of course, set up together uh, long ago. We all understand that. They were separated some time ago. But the dean of Westminster, the cleric in charge of Westminster Abbey, uh, is ex officio a governor of the school. There's a formal link between the two institutions, between Westminster Abbey, the national monument where our sovereigns are crowned, and a very expensive private school. And if you go onto the web site of the school, you will see that one of the things it points out is that the school uses Westminster Abbey, uses Westminster Abbey as its chapel twice a week, and at many other occasions during the year, so that pupils have a chance to speak and perform in this historic and beautiful venue. The abbey is used as part of the curriculum of the school, which is you put on its website for use by only those with a very uh, great deal of money. And St. Paul's also has connections with the school, although it was founded by the Dean of St. Paul's as the monument in St. Paul's. Although here, the two have been completely separated. The building has moved and the structures, and there's no reference at all beyond, I think, an annual commemoration ceremony um, there's no link, really, between the two. But Westminster Abbey, where the crown and the state and the nation come together, is viscerally connected to one of the most expensive private schools in our country. Proclaiming the good news to the poor is a complicated business without state funding for your building. Now, I know this is... Very, we all understand the difficulties, and none of us would want to be the person in charge of these buildings making these decisions. I mean, how you keep up a building which will be worn down by tourists, besieged by tourists, which has to be a church, and which you want to keep open free. My concern, as I say, is that there's nothing in the language. If you come as an outsider, what you experience in visiting these buildings tells you virtually nothing about their prime purpose. It appears as though you pay the money simply so that the building can go on being the building. There is no suggestion that if you contribute to Westminster Abbey, you are helping Westminster Abbey help the poor, or helping St. Paul's in its social work, or what other kind of work with those beyond the church for whom the church exists. No suggestion at all. That seems to me quite serious. The assumption has become the building is its own justification, and it must stay up because 
it must stay up. What are these buildings now for? And what do we want them for? And what part do we want them to play in our national life? We're going to have a coronation next year. The whole question of the establishment of the Church of England, its privileged position, its links with the monarchy, will be debated. Right at the heart of that debate must be the contradictions that are self-evident in these two buildings. And I want to finish quickly at St. Paul's with one of the most famous pictures uh, of the 19th century, Holman Hunt's Light of the World. Uh, Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Another of the great metaphors, I am the light of the world. Those passages and revelations, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The idea of Jesus in the fallen garden, the apple show we're in Eden after the fall, a world of sin. The Christian soul has been grown over with brambles uh, and, uh, and, and, and clutter, and Jesus is knocking to come in. Holman Hunt painted the first version of this, um, uh, which is the one you see here, uh, in the early 1850s. And it rapidly became one of the most popular paintings in England. Uh, it was toured around the United Kingdom, almost unheard of in the 1850s. And the print, um, which was made after it, uh, sold millions of copies. This became the image in a tradition that was nervous of imagery. This image became what even the most extreme Protestants could use and feel told them something central um, about the faith and that salvation was for them, for all of them. He painted a second version, a little sketch because it was so popular, and this is now in Manchester. Um, and uh, is in Manchester Art Gallery. Very much the same, uh, but very much because there was such demand for a second version. And then, in the 1870s, the first version was given to Keeble College, Oxford. And Keeble College decided to charge to make, let people see it. Sixpence. Holman Hunt was outraged, absolutely outraged, that a painting that was about the hope for all, salvation for all, in a, in a college devoted to Christian teaching, Keeble in Oxford, was charging money. And so he specifically said he would paint another version in order to make it accessible to poor and rich. This is the version um, of the light of the world, which is now in St. Paul's. It has an extraordinary history. He starts it in 1897, and it's bigger, and it's more elaborate. And he does one very remarkable thing. He changes the lantern. Um, the, yes. And to the lantern, he adds, and I hope you can see it, on the left-hand side, a star and a crescent. The left-hand side of the lantern. He had spent a great deal of time in Jerusalem in the Middle East. He had become convinced that Christianity made no sense unless it was seen in the context of other religions. And so this light of the world is, of course, Jesus. But it's Jesus also as part of an Islamic tradition, one of the great prophets of Islam as well. And uh, this was what he wanted uh, to be seen by rich and poor uh, alike. 
Two things now happen. It's bought by Charles Booth. Booth, the great sociologist who studies poverty in London, and along with Seabone Roundtree, changes the debate about poverty. And Booth is fascinated by Holman Hunt's idea that these things must be for everybody. Then comes the Boer War, the bitter Imperial War South Africa. Holman Hunt is shocked, opposes the war. And after the war, in 1905, it's suggested that this picture should go to South Africa as a gesture of reconciliation. It turns into something much bigger, and this picture, in 1905, sets off on a tour around the world. And there's never been anything like it. This is Sydney in 1905. People queuing outside the art gallery in Sydney and inside where people fainted regularly with emotion and heat. It goes all around Australia, different towns. It goes to New Zealand, different towns. It then, uh, having gone first to Canada, and then it goes to South Africa. It travels all around the white empire. It's seen by millions and millions of people. And then, when it comes back, Booth decides he's going to give it to St. Paul's. And Hunt is appalled. He wants it to go to the Tate, where Booth had first intended it to go. And he particularly doesn't want it to go to St. Paul's because Holman Hunt had been widowed in the 1870s and had married his dead wife's sister. The Church of England forbade that, and he was blocked from all further commissions for the rest of his life. By far the most successful uh, painter of the time for religious matters, no further commissions. Um, the Booth persisted, and he assumed, of course, that if it went to the Tate, it would be there for all and would be there to uh, enable uh, everyone to, uh, to, to see it um, uh, for, 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 forever. Um, it's, I think, very, very serious that this picture is not just hiding your light under a bushel, it's hiding the light of the world under bubble wrap. What is going on? Is St. Paul's able to look after this picture? The purpose of the picture was to be seen by rich and poor alike. It was bought by somebody whose main work in life was for the poor. It was given to an institution on the basis, on the assumption, that would always be free. Is St. Paul's able to honor those aspects of this picture's history and purpose? And if it can't, then I think it has to find another solution. It is not at the moment possible to see the light of the world. It comes oddly, or fits perhaps too well, with the Abbey's mission and with this question of where we are now with faith at the heart of the nation. Because St. Paul's has a huge opportunity here. This is a cross-faith emblem. And right on the other side of where it used to hang we have the other one. This could be a house of prayer for many, many faiths, if that's the way they chose to keep it. And I want to finish with the most poignant of all. In the crypt of St. Paul's, in the chapel of the Knights Bachelor of the British Empire, a recently commissioned work of art, which appears on St. Paul's website, Huey O'Donoghue's St. Martin and the Beggar. The legend of St. Martin, the knight, who divides his cloak and gives half of his cloak to a beggar 
and then later has a dream and realizes, of course, the beggar was Jesus. In giving to the poor, he was giving to Jesus. It's the chapel of the Knights of the Empire. It's in the crypt of St. Paul's. And it explains very clearly uh, on the website what it's about and that this is the great moment of charity, St. Martin and the beggar. It doesn't seem to be a question worth addressing on the website that the beggar is not going to be able to see the good thing that is being done for him because the beggar is not going to be able to afford to come in to St. Paul's. Where are we at the end of all this? I think we're in a state of profound cognitive dissonance, the, to put it at its kindest. These organisations have got confused between the building and keeping the building and the purpose for which the building is principally there. I think we need a discussion about this. Ten years ago, during the Occupy uh, events, the question came right to the surface, and then it faded. We need to find a way of discussing calmly how this cognitive dissonance can best be resolved. This is no criticism of those now running these organizations. They've inherited contradictions which are very hard to resolve. But I can't believe that the current situation is the one that we ought to go on living with. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.